Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, where we equip men and women to be faithful in every aspect of life. This week, you will hear the opening sections of Rachel Jankovic's Fit to Burst, read by the author. To my parents, who are the best. Forward. I'll tell you the truth about this book. It seems only fair since, apparently, you are sitting with it in your hands about to dive in. If I were a great mother, this book would not be here. If I always knew what to do with my kids, if it all came easily, there would have been nothing to say. You don't have to wrestle with issues if you aren't struggling with them, after all. Many of the things I write about are quite current for me, and they will be tomorrow, too. Having thought of a way to deal with something does not take care of that issue forever. I will continue to have to practice the things I write about, and that is good. I don't pull punches or hold back in this book, because I am writing to myself as much as to you. I know that as mothers we face very similar temptations, and we have a unique opportunity to sympathize with each other over those challenges. We have a common bond. We are the sisterhood of the people who know about long days. That is true. But the fact that we all face the same temptations should give us a burning desire to conquer them, not to wallow in them. I write hard-hitting things to myself because I want to grow in grace. I'm sharing them with you in the hopes that they will strengthen your faith and encourage you to mother in a way that honors Christ. If something in this book strikes a little close to home for you, know that it struck in my home first. I am not writing about other people's problems, although I know many of them are common. I write about what I know, and what I know is the challenges, the joys, the work that is involved in raising little people. If you don't want to be challenged, then don't read this book. If you're just looking for sympathy and an eye roll about the work you do, just mention you have children to someone at the grocery store. This book is a collection of field notes from a mom seeking to honor the Lord in her daily life. It isn't a method or a system because it is messy, just like the life I am busy living. I write quickly in a short amount of time. I write during my normal life with my kids doing the normal thing. I write with a toddler on my lap or type with one hand while I nurse my sweet new boy. I am not pretending to be a mother, writing about motherhood in the abstract. I am writing about what is very real to me. I hope you can hear my little people in the background of this book. I hope you can hear them playing, telling me they're thirsty, or periodically interrupting for snacks. I hope you can hear that we are making Play-Doh or dealing with someone who is crying. Since I wrote Loving the Little Years, my children have grown a little. What I write about has grown a little bit, too. But it is built on the same foundation, grace, grace, and more grace. I hope that it will encourage you in some way. Chapter 1. The Paradox Perspective Before you dive into this book, I'd like to make sure that I am perfectly clear about a few things. As you read, you will notice a lot of emphasis on giving and sacrifice. To keep the whole book from becoming one huge parenthetical remark, I'd like to discuss this at the outset. The mentality of sacrifice is not a mentality of sorrow. The life of giving is not an empty life. I am not writing about sacrifice because I think that moms as a whole are not run down enough or tired enough or working hard enough. I write about it because it is the first step to encouragement, to clearing your mind, to being fulfilled. Scripture is very clear on this. If you seek to be full, give. The verse about the first being last and the last being first is not talking about how all winners will be losers at the end. As though life were a foot race and at the end a little surprise switcheroo happens, 
The officials declare, actually, this was not about being first. We just wanted to see who was the slowest and give them the prize. Rather, this verse is talking about those who seek their own interests first. Those who put themselves above others will be the last. Those who value themselves the least will be the most valued. There isn't any way to do this other than the hard way. Giving with a lot of enthusiasm for watching yourself in the mirror isn't really giving. It's just watching yourself. Sacrifice isn't really sacrifice if it involves only doing what you want. The point I want to make is that this is not my tricky innovation. It is a principle of Christian living. It is easy for us to mishear and to be offended by this kind of talk because it is not the way the world thinks. Most of us grew up in a culture that despises this kind of thinking, and it may not come naturally to us, but we need to have the language of Scripture define our way of thinking and not truisms from the world. Many of us might hear, Sacrifice for your children every day and immediately think, but who's looking out for me? I have needs. Let's consider a sampling of verses from Scripture that pertain to giving ourselves. Give, and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down and shaken together, and running over shall men give into your lap. For with the same measure that you measure, it shall be measured to you again. Luke 6.38 This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. John 15, 12 through 15. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Philippians 2, 3 through 4. There is that scatters and yet increases, and there is that withholds more than is right, but it leads to poverty. Proverbs 11, 24. The more we are steeped in the language of the Bible, the more we will recognize when things from the world are slipping in. When you find yourself getting stuck in a needy mentality, you will look for ways to give. And you won't look for ways to give just because you have to, and it's a terrible Christian duty. It is our duty. But when we faithfully obey as unto the Lord, we are given great joy, great satisfaction, and great fulfillment in the task. When you empty yourself for others, God fills you up, but not so you can suddenly retire with your little packet of joy. God gives to us that we may give. We give. He gives us more, with which to give more. It is not a cycle that will stop as soon as our kids turn 18. This is God's pattern for the life of believers, whether or not they have children. This is how He wants us to be as people not just as mothers. If you are like me, then motherhood may be the first time you were really tested in the business of laying down your life. I'm not saying that I never did anything hard before I became a mother, but motherhood is different. For one, most other challenges that I had experience with ended. Motherhood is not just a job, it is an identity. More importantly, it's an identity that begins and ends with giving. Being a mother changes your role in the world. Here are these little people, and they need you. They will go on needing you every day for life. They change what you can do, where you can go, how you sleep. They get up in the gears of every part of your life. You may have given up a career to have children. You have given up your body. You may want to think that whatever you've given up was enough. The sacrifice can stop already because look at what I've already lost. Don't ask more of me. I have given it all. There are two things about this that bear mentioning. First, there is a difference between giving something and having it taken from you. If you still count the things that you lost with resentment, then you did not give them. You need to let go of those things that you no longer have. Lay them down. If you find yourself in bed at night tallying what has been lost to you, you need to let go of that list. 
lay them down, give them freely, and don't count them as stolen. The second thing I hope we can see is found in the second chapter of Philippians. These verses are probably quite familiar to you, and that makes it easy to skim past without really thinking about what they say. So slow down and read with specific application to your role as a mother. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Verses 3 through 4. This passage begins with this exhortation about how we are to view others. Others most certainly includes your children. Prioritize their needs. Think their needs are more important than yours. And it continues, why should we do this? Because we are to imitate Christ. Let this mind be in us. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Verses 5 through 8. There is no amount of humbling ourselves that can compare to Christ's death. Whatever hot thoughts you can come up with about cleaning the bathroom or dealing with the sick children or wiping the snot off your shirt, whatever it is, it isn't much. We were already fallen creatures before we took on motherhood. But this passage calls us to imitate Christ in this. Have you taken on the form of a servant? Have you made yourself of no reputation? That should sound familiar at least. This is how we imitate Christ. We esteem others greater than ourselves, and that turns into action. You will be humbled. You will have opportunities to humble yourself further. Choose to do so gladly, not resentfully. Christ's life given up for others is the centerpiece of our faith. Our lives given up for others is the centerpiece of our faithfulness. The glory is that in both cases, death is not the end. Christ has died for us for all time, but the trail he blazed does not end in the grave. He tells us to follow— to imitate him. This book is about that, about giving, about sacrifice, about humbling yourself, about valuing others, but primarily it is about life. It is about sinking your teeth into the kinds of moments that motherhood offers you. It is about growing in Christ in the mundane. It is about seeing the gospel and the work you're doing. It is about joy and faith and laughter beyond the sacrifice. Chapter 2, The Unbaked Biscuit. I've had this thing going lately about biscuits. It is probably due to the colder, delicious fall air. This is the season of comfort food. But to have comfort food, there needs to be a comfort person. This is not just a season to have a hot dinner hitting the table. It is the season to have a person who loves you putting it there. In my life, prompted by the cute faces that travel about my home at half height, this has somehow become a burning need to perfect biscuits. Of course, there are other things too, but biscuits are just so symbolic. Biscuits make up a small part of the culinary world. They are easy and quick and have been satisfying children leaving honey trails on the table for generations. But biscuits have to be made. It isn't enough to think of biscuits because having thought of them doesn't make a childhood more full. Having thought of them doesn't give the dinner table that wonderful allure that having actually made them does. Your thoughts alone will not play into the memories of your children. A little guilt cycle often happens in the life of a mother. It usually goes something like this and could take anywhere from two minutes to two years to complete itself. I thought of biscuits. I would like to be a person who makes biscuits for my hungry children. I do not feel like making biscuits right now. I will make biscuits another time. 
I will have time when I'm not tired and feeling fat. The kids won't know. I wish I had made biscuits. I could have made biscuits. I'm such a bad mom who doesn't make biscuits. I'm not as good as all the moms who are everywhere in the stupid world making biscuits. People who talk about making biscuits are self-righteous. I hate biscuits. They make me feel guilty. Jesus loves me. Biscuits or not. Jesus doesn't care that I didn't make biscuits. Home free. Biscuit free. Of course the conclusion here is perfectly accurate. Jesus doesn't care in the abstract whether or not you are making biscuits. And of course biscuits are only an example of something that you could do for your children, might not want to do, wish you had done, and then feel stricken with guilt over not doing. It could just as easily be decorating your kid's room, sewing a dress, making a birthday cake they wanted, talking to them in the evening longer than you wanted to, quitting your job to prioritize spending time with them, cleaning the bathroom, or any other thing that could actually be done, anything that could qualify as work. The thing is, works righteousness is a damning theology. Jesus did the work for us by living sinlessly and dying for our sins. We cannot earn anything by doing so it is dangerous to start talking about anything that Christians should be doing. If you could be the most accomplished mother in the world on your own strength, it wouldn't matter in the end. There is no freedom from sin that you can find by doing something. Jesus is all, his blood is sufficient, and there is nothing you can do that will change that. But his blood will change you. When Jesus is all, things happen. When you believe to your core that you are forgiven and loved, one of the first things that happens is you start doing things. Fruit is intimately connected with forgiveness. When we are forgiven, we do not gallop out into a life of ambiguity and indifference. We do not become great negotiators of whether or not it matters that we aren't doing things. We become filled with gratitude, love, joy, and peace. And then, having a firm foundation of another's righteousness, we are free to go out and do. Jesus does not care even the tiniest bit what you do for your salvation because there is nothing you can do for it, but he cares very much what you do with it. Having been given it, go out and reflect on all the things that you don't have to do, be embittered by every appearance of work, despise anything that doesn't come easily to you that might be difficult, choose to be above the physical world, look down on sisters who are getting more done than you. What is fruit but the outworking of our salvation? Take what you have been given and turn a profit on it. The parable of the talents in Matthew 25 is quite relevant here. The master gives gold to his servants before he leaves on a journey. Two of them use the gold to earn more. Their investment pleases the master. He says, well done. But the man who is given one talent and merely keeps it safe does not please him. Why would you bury what I gave you? Why would you sit on it in fear? What I gave you was to be used. Turn a profit on it. Is this us? Are we always guarding the gold we were given, always afraid of losing something? Are we storing up an arsenal of unbaked biscuits with which we will feed no one? And when our master returns and asks us, what have you done with what I've given you? Will we point at the other servants and say, look at them. They thought the gold you gave us wasn't sufficient. I knew it was, so I hid it to keep it safe for your return. Our master did not give us this gold of forgiveness so that we might hide it. He wants us to use it. He wants us to make things happen with it. He wants us to take our salvation and turn it into biscuits hot on the table. He wants us to take our salvation and turn it into contagious joy, into sacrifice for others. He wants us to use it. The love of Christ is not the reason that we don't have to do things. It is the reason we get to do things freely. If you had no gold, there would have been nothing to invest. If your master gave you gold, 
you should not be sitting on it. In Christian circles, there is constant talk about free salvation. It is free, thank God, but it is only free to us. God paid a great price for it. Jesus paid with his blood. It is free to us because someone else paid a great deal. And this is why we do not work out our salvation by never doing anything that might be hard or difficult to us. We imitate Christ and we make sacrifices for others. We do things that are hard, that cost us much because we want our gifts to be free to others. It is so easy for us as mothers to look at the work we do on behalf of our families and resent that it is free to them. Look at those kids thinking that the clean clothes just appear magically. Look at these people not valuing the cost of my work. Look at this ungrateful family who just takes the food and eats it like it was free. But it is very important that we see the damage that this kind of thinking brings with it. When we want the cost to be shared by all, we are not imitating Christ. When we imitate Christ, we want to give what costs us much, and we want to give it freely. Of course, we have short-term vision, and often we feel like when we freely give, we need to see right away that it's being used responsibly. We worry that our free sacrifice will make our children greedy takers. We think that we can see how wrong it would be if they thought that our making of biscuits was in any way easy. We want to know within the next 15 minutes that everyone saw what we sacrificed, acknowledged it gratefully, thanked us profusely, reflected on it quietly, and came up with a way to repay us. But God thinks in much, much bigger storylines. So imitate Christ in your giving. Do it daily. Do it in as many little ways as you possibly can. Find a way to imitate him in the folding of the laundry, in the stocking of the fridge, in the picking up of other people's socks. And then decide consciously that you are giving this meal, this clean room, this cheerful Christmas, that you are giving it all freely. And much later, maybe 30 years later, you would like to see your children turn a profit on it. You would like to see your kids taking what they were freely given and turning it into still more free giving. This is because God's story is never little. He works in generations, in lifetimes, and he wants us to do the same. So if the very suggestion of something you might do makes you bristle, if it makes you feel judged or threatened or angry, you need to look to Christ. Your salvation has been paid for. This isn't about that. Stop and be grateful. Thank God things to bake have nothing to do with your salvation. Thank him for loving you. Thank him that he has given you so much to use. Then, after you have remembered the strength of your salvation, go out and do something with it. Find ways to use what you've been given freely to bless those around you. Tie on an apron and dust yourself lightly with flour. You are not here in this world to work your salvation in. Thank God you are here to work it out. There are a million different ways to use this kind of gold. As much as God wants us to be using it, he wants us to be using it in different ways. We don't all need to be making biscuits, but we should all be doing something. We should all be getting our hands into stuff to give. We should be blessing others, thinking of others, giving to others, and we should be doing it so freely that we don't remember it because we are willing to wait to see what is done with it. We are willing to see years down the road what kind of interest accrued on those biscuits. Chapter 3, The Mean Boss One evening a while ago, I was talking with my husband after the kids had all gone to bed. We were just talking about how things were going and what we needed to work on. I found myself giving him a review of all the things that I was not getting done. I specifically remember bringing up the state of the upstairs bathroom. 
I had not even gotten close to cleaning it in a long time. I was so grossed out by the dirtiness of the bathroom, and I was being quite hardcore about my own failure to clean it. There were other things, too. I wanted the yard to look nice, the playroom to be organized, the bedding doll be clean and darling, and so on and such forth. It just hit me all of a sudden how funny it was that I was sitting there complaining about my own job performance, and I was telling my husband all the ways I was better than this. Not in those words, of course. I was just itemizing the things I hadn't gotten to with a critical spirit. I was picking on myself, but I was doing it with part of myself that didn't want to take any responsibility for what happened. That critical complaining part of me was the mean boss. The part of me that failed to get it done during the course of the day was the employee. In this particular situation, I was bringing out the mean boss in order to make the employee look bad. It was her fault. I clearly expect a lot more of her. She is a failure. Let me take a moment to distance my leadership from her performance. Anyway, I realized suddenly that this was at the heart of the constant tension in my work at home. I am in charge both of setting the goals and expectations and of following through on them. I am both the boss and the employee. It can be phrased another way that maybe feel more familiar to many of you. How can you care enough to try, but not so much that you lose it when you fail? How can you be motivated to work hard on something that will, in all likelihood, fall apart sometime in the near future? How can you aspire to have a productive Saturday but hold it loosely when it doesn't happen? How can you both work diligently on a to-do list and cheerfully lay it down when you are interrupted? This is where we can easily put on the persona of a beat-up employee. I tried, but I'm not good enough to do it. I was working on that, but things just kept happening and I lost track of it. I wanted to get the house together today, but I didn't because I am like that. I'm a failure. I can't do anything. I should clearly be fired. When I was itemizing that trouble with the upstairs bathroom, it finally occurred to me that my husband actually did not care. He would doubtless have preferred a cheerful welcome to our messy home than a numbered list of things I intended to do. So what exactly was going on here? I realized that I was telling him about my expectations, and apparently my expectations were not aware of what my life is actually like. My expectations were ignoring, intentionally too, that I had spent the day with a toddler and that a mountain of laundry had been tamed. My expectations ignored the dinner that was served. They pretended not to notice the clean children or all the dishes that had been done that day. They turned a blind eye to the baby that was at that time growing inside. My expectations were a seriously mean boss. When you are a mother and a homemaker, you are your own boss. The days are what you make of them. The tasks that need to get done are put on a list at your discretion. This means that you must be leadership material. At the same time, what you get done is up to you, too. You also have to be a hardworking employee. The part of you that decides where to go must work with the part of you that needs to go there. Making a list that you cannot accomplish does not make you a better housewife. It makes you a bad leader. Snarking at yourself just makes you a bad leader who is also mean. There are a lot of different combinations that can happen here. Sometimes you're a really great employee but a bummer of a leader. You can set the standards for yourself so low that you will always achieve them with time left over. But where are you going? What do you aspire to? Who has a vision around here? If the leader in you is happy for you to spend the days in your pajamas, then the leader in you needs to wake up. Sometimes you might be a bad leader the other way. You set the standards for yourself based on some sort of mythical time when children didn't get dirt under their fingernails. In this life, there is nothing for you but discouragement, because no matter what you do, you cannot conform your performance to your expectations. This would probably manifest your life most often as you succumb to discontent, discouragement, and despair. 
or it may manifest itself by making you an absolutely no fun person to be around. Your children fear the wrath of leaving finger oils on the glass. The whole family holds their breath when the milk spills or when the eggs break on the floor. Sin has gotten confused with having a runny nose, with not looking ironed, with talking loudly. This is the kind of hard-edged leadership that ruins lives. You are going somewhere, sure, but it isn't anywhere good. This kind of house grows children who ricochet out of it and swear off eating dinner at the table. Who wants to eat at a table where nothing happens that isn't snarky? Nobody wants to gather around with people who despise you and who see you as a task to be checked off. This is the kind of leadership that does not build culture, it breaks it down. This is the kind of leadership that cripples children. If you were like this, you will find it incredibly easy to have some children that cut with your grain and one that just always gets on your nerves. When you have blind allegiance to a list, you can come down incredibly harshly and unkindly on a child that just happens to be clumsy or a little absent-minded or a more tactile learner. This kind of leadership is enormously destructive. It does not matter what is on the table when the people around it aren't at peace. It doesn't matter how clean the house is when bitterness is growing in the hearts of all your children. So the real goal here should be to illustrate for our children the attributes of both great leadership and faithful following. They should see us setting realistic but maybe difficult goals and working hard towards them. They should see us being visionaries who are anchored firmly in reality. They should see us steadily plotting, faithfully working on things in a realistic way. They should see us laboring hard to make a beautiful life for them while not losing sight of them in it. What I realized was that I needed to make this visionary side of myself a friend of reality. I needed to still want clean bathrooms, but not as much as I wanted peace at home. I needed to want the closets to be organized, but not as much as I wanted my attitude to be organized. I needed to want the table to be beautiful, but not as much as I wanted the people around it to be happy. I needed to set goals that could be attained. I needed to keep an eye on morale. I needed to challenge myself, and I needed to know my frame. This tension will always exist for us, but, Lord willing, over time, we will learn. We will grow in maturity and faithfulness. We will be able to effectively decide to do something and follow through on it without steamrolling all the people in our path. There is even a chance that sometime in this life I will get that bathroom clean. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the All of Christ for All of Life podcast. That was the opening sections of Rachel Jankovic's Fit to Burst. If you'd like to hear the rest of the book on audio, you can purchase it at audible.com or anywhere audiobooks are sold.